This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've delivered a variation of this sermon on another occasion here as a charge to a candidate for the recent ordination of one of our DBTS alumnus. I chose the passage because it derives from a letter addressed to an individual young minister, but is also delivered in the hearing of a full church. So I think it was singularly appropriate on that occasion, and I think also to get significant press time in the seminary context as well. So it's very likely you've heard other sermons on this text, but I'm not apologizing for that. There's certainly the whole of this passage has not been absorbed by all, so it's without apology that we turn here this morning and read verses 11 to 16 and see if we can't learn here, as Timothy did and countless others after him, about how we can advance uh, in our work as ministers of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 then, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So as I begin looking at this little section of the book of Timothy, it's immediately obvious from this opening phrase, these things, command and teach these things that we're breaking into a larger discussion already in progress. Some would suggest that I've cut in at a very bad time because uh, this is sort of the conclusion of the previous section. But uh, most commentators would suggest that uh, uh, this, is a, this is a statement, sort of a rhetorical marker here uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the flow of this book here. Uh, it's a, a marker here uh, to sort of take pause uh, between sections of the book. So rather than thinking about this, these things as being the immediate context here, preaching the gospel, which certainly should be preached relentlessly, it's probably a summary of everything that we've seen up till this point in 1 Timothy 1 to 4. And if we take a survey of that, I think we'll discover that a lot of things have been said that of are of Rather a, rather a difficult nature, okay? Uh, so he says, if we go in textual order here, chapter 1, he says to Timothy, he says, uh, preach against fables, preach against ridiculous questions, preach against faith, fake faith, preach against teachers of the law who disregard it, preach against blasphemy, apostasy, and those who seek to destroy the faith of others. This is the kind of ministry that people, you as young ministers, will expect to face. But Paul seems to suggest here that Timothy was facing all of these simultaneously. 
that's just chapter 1. Paul continues by talking uh, to Timothy about matters of immodesty, rebellious women, weak-willed men. Talks about doing battle with seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, hypocrites, legalists, and silly old women. So this is the job description that God gives, Paul gives, to Timothy here. It may be a bit overwhelming, and so what we find here is a little bit of a pause in the, in the discussion here for Timothy to reflect, and perhaps us as well, to reflect upon the, the enormity of the task that we have. And he says, uh, you're going to have some trouble along the way, so how is it that you're going to address this? And he starts out with, these, with this twofold statement here, command and teach. Okay, so in teaching here, instruct, catechize your people, many of whom will be vulnerable to be being taken in by many of these threats here that we've just mentioned. And sound doctrine will protect them, establish them in the faith, and then command them to implement that which they've learned. So command and teach, Paul says. Yet here, in the face of what must have seemed to Timothy almost overwhelming odds here, obstacles to effective ministry, Paul points out yet another obstacle for Timothy, and one that most of you, at least in the short term, will face. Timothy was a youth. It's a term typically reserved for people under the age of 40. There's a little bit of debate as to exact numbers here, but uh, until you're 40 years old, you're considered a youth. No one likes to be commanded at all, told what to do and not to do. But when the person commanding you is younger than you are, it's that much more difficult. Okay? And as many a young preacher has stumbled over the obstacle of youth. And that's sort of the burden that I have this morning. Uh, I've been here 20 years now. It doesn't seem possible, I, I know, with my stunningly youthful physique here. But <laughs> I've seen over the years numbers of occasions where young seminarians graduate, will go into churches, and as Dr. McCune used to say, blow in, blow up, and blow out. Okay. And what happens in those situations is rarely that the seminarian had bad doctrine a defective ministry philosophy, or undisciplined character. Usually those things are, are intact. So what happens? Well, at some point along the way, his youth got in the way, and it became something of an insuperable barrier to effective ministry. And so Paul is writing to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. And that's my burden this morning. And so Paul makes a curious command here, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. I say it's curious because it involves what we all know to be a third-person imperative, which we don't have in English. I don't typically bring the ling languages into the pulpit here, but I'm preaching to seminary folks, so please indulge me. Uh, we all are familiar, of course, with imperatives in English. They're almost always in the second person. You stand up, you close that door, whatever. But, but we can't say in English, he, stand up, or she, close the door. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. But it's a standard part of the Greek language, and one that is naturally very difficult to translate into English. Literally, we have something like, they don't despise Timothy because of his youth. 
it just seems like an awkward way of saying it. So we, we tend to uh, opt for options like uh, let or allow no one to despise your youth, or perhaps a statement of ought, no one must or should despise you because of your youth. And perhaps if this was being read to Timothy in the context of the church, the reader might turn to the church and say, hey, don't despise Timothy because of his youth. Don't hold him in contempt because he is young. But the curiosity of the third person imperative is such that it is not a direct command to the congregation. It's an indirect one. The command is addressed to Timothy, and the implication here is that Timothy can and should do something about the problem, the potential tension of youth. So Paul is laying responsibility for spanning the generational gap and assuaging the contempt on Timothy's back, not on the backs of the older men and older women who are struggling who are ad- to adapt to changes introduced by the younger generation. Paul's not saying here that you can't implement change. That's not the point. But he is saying this. As a youthful minister, you are the responsible party for leading your church into that change in such a way that the older generations don't despise you or hold you into contempt. Culpability for the generational church splits, Paul is implicitly suggesting, lies in youths who fail to take the steps necessary to avoid the contempt of those older than they are. So if I can, if you'll indulge me a little bit here, Paul is saying, don't do the kinds of typically youthful things that aggravate the older generations. I think think it's a good paraphrase of what's going on here. Now Paul's already brought up this topic several times in the letter. As we read If we had read through the qualifications of the pastoral office in chapter 3, we find many of these focus on the character quality and the characteristics of the pastor. He is to be temperate, self-controlled, dignified, sober, not impulsive, not quarrelsome, but gentle, And ironic, and above all, Paul Paul says a pastor shouldn't be a new convert because it is common among the the new converts to be conceited. Okay, so these these are concerns that Paul has all the way through here in 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 First Timothy chapter three, and he summarizes it by saying that the elder must be in possession of a good reputation, which is a word, I think I think it's well translated in, in English here, a word that communicates something that has to be built over the course of time. And if you're a youth, you just haven't had much time yet. And so it's hard to build a reputation. So it's hard to be a young minister, Paul says, because to do so, a young man must self-consciously shorten his adolescence. He's just got to do it. He's got to accelerate his maturity and earn qualifiers that are rare among people of your age. They must be humble, grave, graceful, prudent, dignified. These are hard things to develop. It's, it's, it, not only are they difficult to, to develop, but they're very easy to lose, you know, these adjectives. So work very hard at them. Here in chapter 4, Paul adds to these earlier qualities that function as safeguards against contempt. Uh, Some other commands, I think three of them here, uh, we find in this passage. 
he says, first of all, lead by example. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but rather, as an antidote for it, set an example for the believers in speech and in life. These two terms capture the two spheres of Timothy's example and include his public ministry, his speech, his words, and then also his private life, his everyday conduct, his life, his conversation. And there is a tendency, I think, perhaps among pastors toward two ditches of ministry, both of a serious nature. Either they preach better than they live or they live better than they preach. And Paul says you you can't choose between the two. You have to develop them both. So, Paul tells us that both are exemplary, and having detailed these two spheres, he moves to three specific qualities to cultivate uh, these two spheres, uh, these two spheres and uh, of of ministry. First, he says you must speak and live in a loving manner. In a loving manner, the emphasis here is on self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Don't browbeat or berate from the pulpit. That's not the place for that. Uh, You you can't be harsh in your dealings with people. Instead, learn to spend and be spent for the people of God. They'll follow you. It's been said, perhaps a little bit cheekily, uh, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's all a little bit cliche, but it's true. It's true. You, you, You may have every one of your theological ducks in a row and a bulletproof plan for bringing your church forward, but if people don't sense that they love you, they'll despise you for it. They'll despise you, hold you in contempt because of your youth. You've got to be marked by visible and tactile love. Second area that Timothy needs to be exemplary in is that of faith. It's a term that can have, as many of you know, two possible meanings. It could have reference to Timothy's personal faith, that is, his steadfast in believing the gospel and trusting God in the difficult seasons of life. And certainly we should be exemplary in this area. But probably what we have here is a reference here to Timothy's faithfulness. This is where Timothy is to be exemplary in his faithfulness. carries the idea of being sincere, trustworthy, and then when coupled with love, as it seems to be here, it is a faithfulness in expressions of love. Be faithful to the people around you. If you want people not to despise you because of your youth, be around when they need you. Be routinely around when they need you. When they don't expect you, be faithful to the people, especially at inconvenient times, a great sacrifice. Lend a helping hand, a listening ear, or simply an hour of your time, which you simply don't think you have, but you do. This is where... This is the crucible in which loyalty is earned. You want people not to despise you? Show up at the hospital. Show up in the funeral home. And I guarantee you, you'll do more in those few hours spent than sometimes years speaking to them from the pulpit. They won't despise you. They'll forget about your youth. If you, can, if, if you will be faithful to them personally and express love. Thirdly, Paul says, be an example in the realm of purity. If personal faithfulness is one of the best ways you can earn your people's trust, 
impurity is the capital way of losing it, right? Be careful how you look at a woman, and especially how you touch one. Because if you mess up here, people in the sphere of your pastoral care will despise you, and they should. They should. Practically, what does it look like? Well, if you keep going just a few verses down to, uh, to chapter 5, uh, Paul explains how we are to treat women. He says there in chapter, in chapter 5, verse 2, that you are to treat older women as one's mother and treat younger women as your sisters, thus keeping yourself pure. Okay, so there's, there's the proximate explanation of what Paul means here uh, by being pure. Many of you grew up with sisters. Most, if not all of you, grew up with mothers. And so you know quite implicitly how you look at and touch these women in your life and what kind of pictures you carry around in your wallet of, of them. Well, Paul says this is the kind of thing you should do with every woman. Every woman. They're, 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 these are not, these are not ex- exceptions. Okay? Crossing the line with your sister or your mother in these areas is, is very distasteful. Even in a culturally bankrupt morally in terms of morals of society. I mean it's 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 even it's distasteful even there. So Paul says if you adopt that kind of thinking about all women, then you're going to protect your purity. So Paul says to think of all women, with the sole exception of your wife of course, in this way. Now this concern for Paul is a principal one and one that we need to revisit regularly. How do you keep people from despising you for your youth? Well, very simply, flee youthful lusts, among which this form of lust is chief. In verse 13, then, Paul moves to the second major area for Timothy to cultivate as a means of preventing the contempt that attends youth, and it's much different now. This is a much different set of of instructions here. Paul moves out of the realm of personal example and now moves, rather perhaps oddly we might think, to the elements of the liturgy. Now some some don't like that kind of term here, liturgy here, but the elements of public worship. And he goes through three of these. Now sometimes uh, we we tend to think that uh, liturgy can be overdone and all that, but Paul seems to recognize even back here in the first century, that there is a habit among youths to be unduly creative in how they conduct public worship, adapting and recreating worship according to the whims and wishes of prevailing culture. And he's concerned about this. Novelty and virtue, novelty is not a virtue in public worship. And so Paul pedantically walks through three essential elements of the liturgy as a means of keeping people from despising you because of your youth. First, he says, give attention literally to the reading. It says here in the NIV, the public reading of Scripture, and I think it's capturing the idea here. There's There's an article here, the reading. So Paul is not saying, you know, make sure you read a lot. Uh, whether whether you're reading your Bible or anything else, important as that habit might be, that's not Paul's burden. And so he is saying to Timothy, maintain the reading. 
the established and vitally important practice in the early church of publicly reading large blocks of the scriptures. Of course, in the first century, this practice had heightened importance because believers, by and large, didn't have copies of the scriptures and certainly not of the whole scriptures. And so coming together in the context of the church was often the only place where people could hear what the scriptures had to say. But I'm hesitant to conclude that just because this situation has changed, that the public reading of the scriptures is therefore reduced. It's a sad fact that many believers don't read their Bibles much. They ought to, but many don't. Many who do have a rather poor habit of returning endlessly to a few favorite passages that make them feel existentially good. And so Paul says, remedy this by reading the Bible, reading it publicly, reading it substantially in large chunks. Read it indiscriminately, exposing God's people to the whole story and not just select parts. It's hard to imagine how anything could be more valuable to believers than this. And it takes a back seat to no other aspect of the worship service. But it's not the only element of public worship. Paul says, secondly, give attention to preaching. Literally, the preaching. Again, there's this article there that we have to explain. Why is it, why is it there? I think what he's saying is here is pay attention to the sermon. So if we can make it a noun form. So it's not just pay attention to reading, but pay attention to the reading, the public reading of Scripture. Pay attention to preaching. No, pay attention to the sermon. I think here there's, a, there's an emphasis here on uh, homiletical craft. Okay. Uh, so here we have here the public exhortation of the saints with an attendant appeal for a response. Now, Paul has already told Timothy that uh, he is to be loving and gentle and gracious and ironic in his dealings with God's people. And perhaps Paul wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't hear that as, you know, be rather bland or uh, timid in your preaching. And I don't think that's what uh, Paul wants here. He says, you must command things. It's a great art to be able to command in a gentle way probably known a handful of people over the years who are able to command, yet do so gently. It's a craft I'm still working on (laughs) greatly here. But, Paul says, make sure you work on these things. You cannot lay one of these aside. You have to command, and you have to do it gently. Whatever you decide, don't lay one aside and just take up the other. Pay attention to your homiletical craft and perfect This balance, Paul says, and you won't have to worry about people who are in the habit of despising youth because they won't account you as one of them. Thirdly, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to, again, the teaching. It's hard to know exactly how to put this in a a noun form here. Uh, I'm I'm tempted, perhaps. I'm not sure I have quite the uh, exegetical warrant to do it, but Perhaps we could say, pay attention to the confession or to the creed. Uh, There certainly were those that were uh, uh, percolating among the people, even at this early uh, time in the church. Perhaps it would be better to say something like, pay attention to the tradition, the paradosis, the block of apostolic material here uh, that that are... 
the commonly accepted essentials and fundamentals of the Christian faith. So in your preaching, be mindful of your duty not just to change lives, but to guard orthodoxy, guard the faith in the teaching. Okay. It also calls here for then a discovery and a tenacious defense of the fundamentals of the faith. Don't let these slip. No matter how much your peers or even your people might not want them or might neglect them. Guard the orthodoxy of your church at all costs. So guard, firstly, uh, you must must guard the, the, the preaching, the teaching, and the public reading of the Word of God. And do those things as as perhaps as as indirect as it may seem, and you will have an effective ministry where people don't see you as a youth any longer. We come then to verse 14, where we encounter one of the few New Testament references to the symbolic rite uh, uh, for which I originally prepared this sermon, the laying on of the hand by the presbytery, by the elders. Recollection of this event was for Timothy the third and final means of avoiding the despot and the discouragement that often attend youths preaching. He's to lead by example, verse 12, pay attention to the ordinary means of grace and public worship, verse 13. And thirdly here, don't neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. This verse is not an easy one to decipher gives us a bit of pause. There's a suggestion here, perhaps, that Timothy's experience was more than the symbolic act that attends public ordination, perhaps communicating to him some sort of a prophetic acumen. It's borne out by other texts, such as in chapter 1, verse 18, and then in 2 Timothy 1, 6, that suggest here that uh, Timothy was no ordinary pastor, but an apostolic legate, and perhaps a prophet, a New Testament prophet here. So perhaps when we look at this, uh, we, are, we are looking at something uh, that's a little bit different, not entirely normative of our situation. Still, I think there's a precedent here that's established that we can't ignore. While it may be true that for Timothy, the elders were recognizing and affirming a miraculous gift, which doesn't happen today, uh, the principle's the same elders would be summoned together to recognize and confirm character qualities, skill sets, and the orthodoxy of pastoral candidates for the benefit of local churches. That's why we have ordination councils and the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The call to ministry is depicted emphatically here, not as an individual thing, but as an ecclesiastical one. A church calls you into ministry. You earn your calling Not in an existential moment, but in the crucible of the local church. That's where the call to ministry takes place. And they, the collective church, in a formal, united witness, express collective confidence in you and of of their anticipation of your success in the ministry. How do you prevent being despised, Paul says? By surrounding yourselves by elders who will both advise and affirm your ministry. And unlike old Rehoboam, remember him? You will discover that such a practice, when observed by your people, will do much to assuage the skepticism that might naturally be there because of your youth. 
And it is as you watch and guard these things closely, verse 15 says, paying attention to your role as a mature example of Christian word and conduct, privileging the qualities of love, faithfulness, and purity, preserving the identity and the function of the church through the reading, through the sermon, and through the tradition, and submitting to the collective will of the presbytery in their role of identifying, examining, affirming men for the gospel ministry, that Paul can finally complete his paragraph. Everyone will see your progress then. Their contempt and distrust will dissolve, and you will successfully save both yourselves and your hearers. And the salvation here, perhaps is a little bit debated, may have the narrow meaning of embracing the true and genuine gospel, uh, perseverance in which will result in eternal benefit for you and your hearers. But it could also uh, be a more broad expression here. It will save, it'll save your ministry. And by saving your ministry, it will save your church along with it. There's spiritual harm that always accrues to a church when its people despise their pastors. Single word can't have two meanings. It means one or the other, but both probably fit here. By persevering in these qualities, Paul says, you will not only vindicate your election and calling, you will also establish your ministry and establish the church of Jesus Christ in the kinds of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy that for Paul are reflective of true faith. So give yourselves to these, your, give yourself to these things, Paul says, and your church and your ministry will be all that God intend them to be. May the Lord add his blessing to the exposition of his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the for bringing these young men to the place where they are as aspiring young ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would cause us to give ourselves to these matters this morning uh, so that uh, your church will thrive. Lord, we, we desire this above all else. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.